University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. My girls are reading through uh, this book called Dreamers, Visionary Women Around the World. And one of the figures that's fascinating from the book is French and Polish uh, uh, figure named Marie Curie. I'm sure most of us have heard this name before. She, of course, is famous for conducting pioneer researching into radioactivity, which uh, subsequently uh, awarded her two Nobel Prizes. And her work, however, also led to her death because... No one, including Curie at the time, understood that radioactive material, when not handled properly, can, can lead to a number of illnesses and death. Here's a fun fact. Marie Curie's notebook is still radioactive to the point that it can't be handled by just mere hands alone. But what an audacious life and career. Every day you and I have the opportunity to do something audacious. It's called prayer. We're in our series, Audacious, Radical Prayers That Will Transform Our Lives. And each week we are examining a different type of prayer and why it's critical for thriving. And we're not only learning about different types of prayer, but we're challenging ourselves to put them into practice each day to develop a fiercer and deeper journey with God. This morning we're going to look at an audacious nature of the prayer of amnesty. And for this we take a look at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who has sinned against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy times seven. Rabbis were known for saying that forgiveness extends three times before finally refusing to forgive someone who indulges against sin again and again. So Peter believed that he was wildly and magnanimously going past beyond what seemed normal in his day to say that we ought to forgive someone seven times. But Jesus instead says 70 times seven. This is a Hebrew idiom, idiom which is the equivalent of our concept of infinity, more times than you can count. Don't trust my math, but I believe Jesus is basically saying 490 times. And even we've been hurt by people so badly. Think about it. What are your thoughts on forgiving them 490 or 80 times? I think it says on the screen there. Ever been hurt by someone so badly that the thought of forgiving them just once seems painful, let alone infinite times? Some people are, are going to mess up. They're going to hurt us and cause emotional bombs to go off inside us, Jesus says. But you are called to forgive. The word forgive comes from the Greek word epheme, uh, which literally means to release or cancel, let go, or set free. It's, it's a simple fact of life. We will hurt others, and others will hurt us. Each of us could probably stand up here and, and for the next several hours name all the ways that we've been hurt or wrong or backstabbed or betrayed or embarrassed or harassed or taken advantage of or ignored. 
And when someone hurts us, there are endless emotions that, that well up inside us. It's, it's a great cocktail of anger and resentment and bitterness and revenge and loathing that is all mixed together and it's forming this big old emotional bomb that can go off inside us. These feelings are real and they are raw. And not only are they real and are they raw, but they lead us to a sense of pain and betrayal and mistrust and resentment and, and irritation and annoyance. So Jesus is talking about something that every human has and will experienced. But the forgiveness part is remarkably offensive part because why should I release or set free those people who cause such a great emotional turmoil within me? And now that Jesus has our attention, he tells a parable in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Money lending is, is not a, a new concept. Fair money lending is a relatively new idea that borrowers can be protected from, from, you know, predatory lending. So imagine a life of the ancients that borrowed money from a benefactor only to see that loan increase with astronomical interest and unfair financial practices with no legal ramification for the lenders. And we don't know what exactly happened in this situation. Again, it's a parable. But what we do know is there a man who owes this king an absurd amount of money, the equivalent of several million dollars. 10,000 talents was equal to 370 tons of silver, more than Herod the Great's annual revenue. And the obvious question is, how does this man acquire such a large debt in the first place? On his civil servant salary alone, his request to the king to be patient and he will pay it all back is beyond ludicrous. There is no way that he could pay off what is a lifetime, if not dozens of lifetimes of debt. But the story takes this drastic twist when the king decides in light of this impossible situation to shock the man and to tear up his entire stack of IOUs. What an amazing story of grace and forgiveness. In all the wide-ranging emotions that humans can experience, the feeling of being forgiven has got to be one of the most profound. When, when you know that you've messed up and you've wronged someone else, this is an awful feeling. That is, unless you're a complete narcissist and have... <laughs> no remorse whatsoever. You know the feeling that when you've messed up, it, it hangs over you for days. Things are not right between you and that person. Uh, you don't talk the same way. You don't interact the same way. It's this cloud that hangs over you. But when someone forgives you, when someone shows you grace, it's an immeasurably amazing feeling that begins in our soul and pours out of our bodies physiologically. Hopefully, we've all felt that way as the servant did. But look at what happens 
in verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. To be sure we all are on the same page in what happened here, let me recap the story. A servant owed a king several lifetimes worth of wages. The king, realizing the man couldn't pay it back, showed mercy on this guy and forgave him of this ridiculous amount of debt. And walking out of the palace, the guy runs into one of his buddies who owes him a few dollars. And the guy flips out and demands that his buddy give him the cash he owes him right there on the spot. And because he doesn't have it on him, he has the man arrested and thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. As equally powerful is the motion to be forgiven by someone. The, the emotions associated with being wronged by others is overbearing. As I said earlier, being wronged elevates this powerful emotion of anger and resentment and, and bitterness and loathing. And not only these emotions are raw and real, but they lead us to, to real pain of, of betrayal and mistrust and anger and resentment and irritation and annoyance. And on top of the emotional reasons that makes it difficult to forgive, there are the other reasons of why. We, we, we're scared that this person will hurt us again. We believe that maybe they deserve to be punished. The emotions are still too raw to head down the road of forgiveness. We believe that, that it justifies and excuses their behavior if we forgive them. And, and then there is the things that happen that, that deal with not everyone can relate to. We, we may be the kind of person that we hold grudges. We can't let things go because it's our way of feeling dominant or in control in our lives. Anthropologists have researched our genetic disposition to forgiveness, and one study found that, uh, that have been, uh, we've been endowed with the psychological motivation to avoid being exploited by others. And one of the easiest ways to prevent being exploited uh, is, is simply to not forgive other people. In other words, our ancient, ancient ancestors genetically evolved to retaliation. So while many of us cannot relate to this guy in the sense that we've had somebody thrown into prison, emotionally and relationally and communally and spiritually, we often throw people into an inescapable prison of unforgiveness. But look what happens in verse 31. When the other servant saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? And then his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he is owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus' parable begin with this amazing high note of the power of, of grace, only to take this unexpected twist of the hypocritical nature of human relationships, and concludes with this stern warning against our unwillingness to forgive others, noting that God will not forgive us as a result. 
But how can that be? How can God not forgive us when we choose not to forgive others? I mean, it's not like our act of forgiveness is an act against God. Or maybe it is. You see, despite our best efforts to conquer and divide politically and socially and communally and theologically and emotionally and spiritually, God created us to be creatures of divine harmony with one another. The same God that that created us with the powerful emotion of anger and, and hurt when others have wronged us also created us with the capacity to choose mercy and love. Could it be that what Jesus is warning us about here through this parable is while the allure of anger and resentment and vengeance are very powerful and easy to choose, these things lead us into a prison unto themselves. Have you ever found yourself still disliking someone, maybe even hating them for years? Who do you think of is affected more by that? You or that other person? Have you ever found yourself overwhelmed with replaying the wrongs that were committed against you, the things that were said and unsaid, the things that were done and not done, who is the one that's in prison? Us or, or them? See, hurt can quickly slide into grudges and withholding contact and anger and distrust and maybe even retaliation. Research into the powerful emotions such as anger and resentment and vengeance are very telling. Studies have found that concluded expressions of these emotions are to the detriment of our physical and physiological well-being. That being said, holding grudges and clinging on to such thoughts and feelings, we are actually harming ourselves when often forgiving other people will do the opposite. We also keep the negative energy in our lives, whether it be an energy of outwardly expressed or held silently within our mind and our spirit. And if we live our lives with a running tally of what others have done against us, no one is winning that game, and especially us. Do you remember reading the book growing up, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables? Uh, it tells the story of, of Jean Valjean, who is sentenced to five years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread for his sister and her children. And because he tried to escape, he had his sentence extended by 14 more years. And as he's released, he is uh, burdened by the prison warden, Javert, who reminds them that he is not a free man, but an ex-prisoner on parole. And Jean Valjean will live the rest of his life with this mark of being a criminal. And when Valjean decides to skip his parole and restart his life, Javert spends the next 20 years trying to hunt him down and bring him to justice. Again, the only crime he committed was stealing a loaf of bread for his starving sister and her children. And what Victor Hugo accomplishes in the character of Inspector Javert is to show the dominance of judgment of others and what that can do to our lives. While Jean Valjean served 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, we discover that Javert is imprisoned with his zealous grip of the meaning of the law. A prison warden locked away in his own prison of judgment and condemnation. In the Greek, the language used in the Bible, there's an interesting word associated with forgiveness. It's the word uh, amnestia, which translates 
pass over or set free from prison or our word amnesty. And while it's not the word Jesus directly uses in this parable, the word resonates so vividly with his parable. One man is set free from the imminent prison time due to a tremendous debt, only to throw a friend in prison for an insignificant debt, and thereby finding himself at the bewildering judgment of the king who originally had forgiven him with a get-out-of-free, get-out-of-jail-free card. See, amnesty is a powerful act that not only sets others free of the ways they have wronged us, but also sets us free from the prison of anger and grudges that we tend to hold when we're unwilling to forgive others. Psychologically, when, when people report higher levels of forgiveness, they also tend to report better health habits, decreased depression, anxiety, and anger levels. Physiologically, higher reported levels of forgiveness were associated with lower white blood cell counts and um, higher uh, rate of, of heart rate within our lives and a healthier level. In other words, our body's natural response physiologically and psychologically leads to thriving when we're a person of forgiveness. And amnesty doesn't not mean we become best friends with the person that's wronged us. It's not to say that what happened was okay. It's not to say that we accept the person who has wronged us. Amnesty is choosing to accept what happened as what happened rather than what could have or what should have happened. It can mean that we can let it go. It can mean that we can love from a distance. It can mean that we can step into our present rather than anchoring in the past of a wrong. It's been said that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to realize that prisoner was you. You see, when Jesus gives this statement in Matthew's gospel, in which he said that you ought to forgive 70 times 7, the disciples are so aghast and bewildered by his statement that they actually cry out, the gospel says, increase our faith. See, what Jesus has said in this parable was so radical, so against what appears to be human nature, that the disciples needed Jesus to increase their capacity to believe and to obey what he was trying to teach them. And Jesus responds to them by saying, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. You see, faith is required to live in the way of Jesus. Faith is required because it's not in our nature to forgive. Faith is necessary because to forgive and to love those who've wronged us comes from an external source. Faith is required to forgive, especially the person who has habitually offended and abused and sinned against us. Faith is, is recognizing that God is required for such an act. Faith is recognizing that the power of love and forgiveness comes from God's spirit that dwells within us. Faith is stepped out in obedience to live in the way of Jesus. And, and what's ironic is that the disciples ask Jesus to increase their faith. When Jesus turns around and tells them, it actually takes a teeny tiny bit of faith. He said, if you had a faith as small as a mustard seed. Do you remember when Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed? 
A mustard seed is this tiny little thing that almost can get lost in your hand. But this tiny seed can grow and produce great fruits. Jesus said that your faith does not have to be great because it's God that takes a small amount of faith and increases it into something big. In fact, if you have faith as small as mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, a very deep-rooted and extremely difficult tree to dislodge from the soil, to uproot and to plant itself in the sea. I think if Jesus was to give commentary, he might add to this, God believes in you. God has faith in you that you can do this. God believes that you can be responsible for your action. God knows that you can forgive as God has forgiven you. And that's not only a prayer of amnesty as we're asking God to increase our faith, but we're also realizing our flawed existence at the same time. That's huge. That's a huge theme in Jesus' parable. This one guy is unwilling to recognize his own failings of being forgiven compared to his friend's minuscule failings. And I bet each of us, if we're given the assignment to make a list of the names of people who have hurt us and what they've done against us, it would be a lot easier than for us to sit down and recognize all the ways that we've hurt other people. Wouldn't you agree? Why is it so easy to see the flaws in others and yet not recognize them within ourselves? When the reality of our failures, the things that we've done against others, the, the ways that we've ruined other people's lives and their moments in their lives is such a foreign concept. And unless we're able to recognize our own brokenness, the brokenness that we've caused in other people's lives, then we'll never truly be able to forgive anyone else. And again, Jesus isn't a dummy. He began with the reality of our personal mistakes for a reason. And when we pray, asking God to increase our faith, recognizing our own capacity for failure, our prayer should then lead to action. When people hurt you, Jesus said, you're called to rebuke them. The word he uses here is epitome, which means to express strong disapproval for someone to reprove, to reprimand, to censor, in order to prevent that action from being done again. So the second step of forgiveness is to not only recognize the mistakes that were made to yourself and to the person that hurt you. And for some of us, things just got a little bit more difficult because we hate confrontation. We would rather just let things go and never speak to that person again or just act like nothing ever happened than actually confronting the person that has wronged us. But Jesus said that in order to forgive, you must confront and identify what others have done against you. Now, on the flip side, some of us really love confrontation. We love confrontation so much that we're willing to finagle our way into other people's lives to help them confront the people that have wronged them. So let's be careful here. Jesus is not giving us the go-ahead to uh, physically or emotionally or verbally basically give people the middle finger if they've wronged us. The scripture tells us that in our anger, we should not sin or make more mistakes. So when we approach someone, we're called to do so in the way of Jesus. As one person wrote, forgiveness is giving up the hope of having a better past. Letting go of an unrealistic hope of writing the past creates an opening to forgive and creating a new future. 
And that's not to say that there's not going to be a lot of pride swallowing and praying and trusting and risking involved. You may have been hurt emotionally and physically in any other number of ways between, but Jesus surely didn't forgive us without it costing him himself. In fact, the guy that is teaching us about the power of forgiveness will utter these final words as he hangs on a cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Surely the Son of God, who took on the weight of the world's bad choices and backstabbing and correction, knows the power of forgiveness in our lives. We think that forgiveness is weakness, but it's absolutely not. It takes a very strong person to forgive. And it begins with that person saying, God, increase my faith to show mercy as you have shown me mercy. Throughout this series, we are ending the sermon with a prayer corresponding to the given theme of the morning. And repeating these words does not mean that we're praying these words, but allowing these words to sink into our heart and our mind and our soul as we lift them to a God who hears them is a powerful act of faith. So my challenge to you is that you will pray, pray the, this prayer throughout this week. The prayer that we are going to pray this morning is featured in uh, the window on the website. Will you join me in praying this prayer to God? It's a prayer from St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we awake to eternal life. Amen.